The harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. Why did he use that word? God goes to extreme measures to bring the loss to himself. The greatest gift you will ever give this world is your intimacy with God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three inside of me. I've got the power right now. I think what Jesus really wants is people to go. I want to be the answer to Jesus' prayer request. Welcome to the Fuel for the Harvest podcast. When this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, then shall the end come. Hey, and welcome to this latest episode of Fuel for the Harvest. This is Nathan, and I will be your host for today. Hope you guys are doing awesome. So today we're going to continue in our series on deconstruction, our, our, our conversation on deconstruction. Um, if you haven't listened to the episode from two weeks ago or the episode last week, be sure to take a look at those first, uh, especially the one two weeks ago. I think you'll find that it adds a lot of context. But basically, the purpose of this conversation is evangelical Christianity is facing something quite intense right now, which is this idea of deconstruction. And of course, there's healthy deconstruction, which leads people to understand what they believe and why they believe it. And then there's been some unhealthy deconstruction or uh, some some deconstruction that leads people away ultimately from Jesus. And so the goal of this kind of dis- this ongoing discussion over the course of the last several episodes of the podcast is to answer those questions to look at those difficult questions that are spurring people on to deconstruct and say, hey, how would we respond to these objections? Um, So last week, uh, you probably heard us tell you about hypocrisy and how obviously Jesus hates hypocrisy. Uh, I did a straw poll, which, you know, just like a a quick poll on a a youth group, um, sorry, a youth group Facebook group uh, page. So like a youth pastor page. And I just said, hey, what is spurring your students to deconstruct? And the far most common answer was hypocrisy, um, which is just fascinating in light of how much Jesus absolutely despises hypocrisy. Uh, It is just everywhere in the scriptures that he hates it so much. And God hates hypocrisy. uh, God the Father, that is. Um, So just a Take a listen to that one. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about a subject that strikes pretty close to home for me, which is uh, because someone in my extended family uh, has deconstructed and then ultimately decided to leave the faith entirely because of this exact issue, and that is whether or not we can trust the Bible as God's inspired word. Now, uh, this conversation about whether or not we can trust the Bible can really be broken into two parts. And guess what? We're going to do that. Uh, Part number one, which is today, we're going to be talking about whether or not the writing, like the actual words of the New Testament, and we're going to be focusing on the New Testament today. Um, If you want to talk about the Old Testament, maybe uh, you can send us an email and let us know if that's something that you would like us to make an episode about. Uh, The short answer that I have for you about the Old Testament is if Jesus trusted it, I trust it. Um, that We're just not going to get into the Old Testament today, but we're going to primarily be speaking about the New Testament and why we can trust what the New Testament has to say. So, like I was saying, two, it, it's two conversations. Conversation number one is whether or not what was written 2,000 years ago, the words that were written on the page, are the same words that we have written on the page today. Now, obviously, they've been translated into English from Greek, um, but are... Uh, are, are basically the same words on the page, uh, just translated from Greek, or has it been corrupted or uh, changed over time? 
the conversation that we'll have next week is whether or not the Bible in is whether or not the Bible is trustworthy in what it says. So you can see how the conversation is slightly different. Uh, can we trust the words that are on the page? And then the conversation next week is, can we trust that what the words on the say, what the words on the page say are true? Um, so basically, we're going to be talking to you about various ways that you can test whether or not the Bible matches real-world events, historical events, archaeology, that kind of thing. Um, that is yet still to come next week. So, uh, but without any further ado, a further ado this week, um, let's talk. Are the words that we see on the page the same words that were written 2,000 years ago? just translated into English or whatever language you might speak. And the answer to this question, the simple answer to this question is yes. Now you might be wondering, well, man, Nathan, you better be able to prove that. And I have spent loads of time researching this so that in hopes that I can indeed prove it to you. And uh, to start this conversation, basically the word, the key word in this conversation is manuscript. Now, uh, a quick definition of the word manuscript is just uh, a full or fragmentary piece of, in this case, the Bible. Um, an ancient piece of the Bible that dates close to the original authorship of the text. And uh, there are several different types of manuscripts. There are first papyri, and these by far make up the least number of manuscripts. There are about 5,800 manuscripts for the Christian New Testament, uh, which is an incredible amount when you start to talk about other ancient writings. Um, other ancient writings that we take as accurate historical documents, uh, such as the writings of Tacitus, uh, have many less, <laughs> I mean, many, 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 many less manuscripts. Uh, so this, this number, 5,800 manuscripts uh, from the New Testament is just enormous. And uh, they come in four different types, like I was saying, papyri is number one. And basically, that's a papyrus, mean you know, written on papyrus. And uh, they there are about 155 of them, and they date the earliest. So those are from uh, the 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 second century, kind of on forward. Um, then there's this word that I'm going to definitely butcher. So if you know something about this, you can feel free to email me how you're supposed to pronounce this word. I don't know, maybe an audio file or something. Uh, Majuscules, majuscules. <laughs> um, I the the other one being mini mini minuscules. So ma like major and minuscule, I guess. Uh, basically, these major ones are parchment manuscripts that were written all in upper uppercase Greek, and parchment, I believe, means it was written on animal skin, and these date. Uh, to the 4th through the 8th centuries, so that's the 300s through the 700s, yes. Um, and there are about 300 of those, 338 of those, and then these minuscules, uh, they are about 2,958, um, and that's the largest category of New Testament manuscripts, and they were written from about 835 AD all the way up to the 12th century, the 1100s. And then there's lectionaries, which are are the much later uh, manuscripts, and those number about 2,501. So altogether, there's about 6,000 manuscripts all in all. 
when you compare, like I said, when you compare this to other ancient Near Eastern man or other ancient manuscripts, uh, what you'll discover is that there there's this phrase that gets used quite a bit. It's called an embarrassment of riches. Uh, his historians take at face value the writings of Tacitus, for example, with so many less manuscripts. Um, and so this the, the the idea that we have so many manuscripts to support the New Testament writings, it like historically speaking, it it it's it's beyond reason why people wouldn't take them at face value. Meaning this argument that is made by many, uh like Muslims commonly make this argument, Mormons commonly make this argument, uh you know secularists of various kinds make this argument that the Bible has been corrupted over time or selected out, like certain writings have been selected out of it. There's just no real archaeological or uh, or textual manuscript evidence to support those claims. Uh, the All of the manuscript evidence points to the fact that what we have in our current Bibles is what was written 2,000 years ago. And there are... Before we get too far, there are some ways that that might not necessarily... We'll get into that. Uh, if you know this conversation, then you know that there are certain portions of the biblical text that we have today that may not have been in the original manuscripts, but the good news is, foreshadowing here, we know about them. All right. So, these 5,800 Greek manuscripts make up 2.6 million pages of biblical text. And some of these are fragmentary, but the average size of a New Testament manuscript is 450 pages. So just consider that that, that word average, that's not the, the most commonly occurring number. That is the, when you take the largest occurring number and the least occurring number and add them all together and everything in between, you get on average 450 pages, which is significant. Then, and that's just Greek manuscripts, if you add in manuscripts of Latin, Coptic, Syriac, and Aramean, you get a number in the tens of thousands. The reason that we focus in on Greek manuscripts versus these other languages is that these other languages would have been early translations of the Greek manuscripts. Uh, all our mo modern scholarship suggests that uh, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. You, you won't find a scholar that disagrees with that, or if you do, they're like extreme outliers percentage-wise. Uh, so the reason we don't count these other languages is just because it's not the original language. So all of these manuscripts, and now if you're familiar with this conversation, the next question out of your mouth is, all right, so there's all these manuscripts, but all of those manuscripts were written, written way after Jesus was around? And the answer to that is actually no. Um, though we have complete manuscripts dating uh, to the, th the 300s, uh, like the mid-300s, we have fragmentary, significant fragments dating much earlier to that, than that. Here's some of the earliest uh, papyri. Papyri 90, or P90, as it's referred to, uh, dates to the 2nd century. That's the 100s. That's within a lifetime after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's a small fragment of papyrus with portions of the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 36 through 19.7, on both sides in Greek. Papyrus 104 also dates to the 100s, and it has Matthew 21, 34 through 37, and traces of verses 43 and 45 on the back. 
Papyrus 98. Uh, it is a manuscript that contains fragments of the Book of Revelation and is most likely copied from a, an original around 100, uh, between 100 and 200 in Egypt. And the reason that it's interesting, a lot of these papyri fragments are found in Egypt. Uh, the, re the reason for that is because of the environment of Egypt. Uh, I don't know if you've been there. It's a desert, I guess. And I've not been there. <laughs> and which means that these, these, these portions of text are much more well-preserved simply because there's no moisture to grow mold and rot them away and stuff like that. All right, did I already talk about P98? Yep, Papyrus 52. The earliest, most famous Greek New Testament manuscript is the Reynolds Papyrus, and it dates to 100 to 150, uh, and I believe it has portions of John on it, though I don't remember because it's not in my notes. I'm sorry about that. We also have Papyrus 32, which is Titus, 2nd to 3rd century, Papyrus 46, uh, Romans 1 and 2, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians and Hebrews, 2nd to 3rd century, Papyrus 66, the Gospel of John, 2nd to 3rd century, Papyrus 77, Gospel of Matthew, 2nd to 3rd century, Papyrus 103, Gospel of Matthew, 2nd to 3rd century, and so many more. We're talking just, there's so many. Uh, we have 19 papyrus fragments dating to the second century, 19. That's a significant number. Um, we, uh, the, the, the mo one of the most highly publicized recent finds, which was discovered in 2011, is Papyrus 137, which is a fragment of Mark chapter one. And originally they thought the date range was earlier, but now they've established probably 150 to 250. Uh, that, I mean, 19 uh, in the, earliest parts, I mean, within a lifetime or a lifetime and a half of Jesus. I mean, that's incredible, especially when you're talking about historical texts. Uh, we take certain famous historical texts, be, when our earliest copies of the originals, we don't have the originals anymore, when our earliest copies of the originals are thousands or like not thousands, but like a thousand years later. Uh, this is true for one famous Roman text that we'll get to a little bit later. But just keep that in mind. Like this is, this is incredible. Um, okay, so you're thinking to yourself, great. So we've got all of these manuscripts, and they date. They have a reasonable date. Uh, to and and let me just tell you this also. Uh, as far as like the dating of the book itself, the book itself actually dates much earlier than the first manuscripts that we have of the book. And they decide that based upon the content of the book itself. So for example, we believe that Matthew was written between 85 and 90, which is a lifetime after Jesus, just one lifetime. 60, uh, 65 for Mark, which is just 30 years. I'm old, I'm 30 years old. Like that's not that much time. Uh, 80 to 85 for Luke, 90 to 100 for John. Um, and that's the later dates. Th those are the conventional dates. Some scholars will argue that it's even earlier. One year earlier for Luke, actually, uh, sorry, one year earlier for Mark, 64. Uh, Luke, shortly before 70, which is 10 to 15 years earlier. Uh, Matthew, shortly before after 70, which is 15 to 20 years earlier. Um, and so that's just like, that's significant. Uh, many believe that the book of Acts was written in the 60s, Paul's epistles, Galatians in 48. That's 18 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, most likely within eight, eight, 15 to 18 years, depending on your dating, uh, depending on the date of the death and resurrection, which varies depending on scholars. Uh, 
1st and 2nd Thessalonians in the year 50, not that much later, 1st uh, and 2nd Corinthians 54 and 56 respectively, Romans 57, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians 60, and the pastoral epistles, uh, which are like Timothy and Titus, uh, dated to 63 and 65. So, like, these are all written within a very, very short time period of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the, the, er, the, Here's, here's, here's what one author has to say. Perhaps we can appreciate how wealthy the New Testament is in manuscript, manuscript attestation if we compare the textual material of other ancient historical works. For Caesar's Gaelic War, which is a historical document that we just take at face value, this was composed most likely between 58 and 50 BC. Uh, there are several uh, manuscripts, but the only nine or 10 are good. And the oldest is some 900 years later than Caesar's day. Of the 142 books of the Roman histories of Livy, or Livy, I don't know how to pronounce that, 59 BC to AD 17, only 35 survive. These are known to us from no, not more than 20. Remember, the Bible has nearly 6,000. And this, this historic, this, uh, the books of the Roman history of Livy has 20, not more than 20 manuscripts of any consequence, only one of which, and, uh, only one of which, and containing fragments of books three and six is as old as the fourth century, meaning that the dating of this is much, much 400 years later, right? Because AD 17 at the latest, uh, fourth century, 300 years later, excuse me. Of the 14 books of the histories of Tacitus, which are around the AD 100, 100, only four and a half survive. Of the 16 books of his annals, 10 survive in full and two in part. The text of these extant portions of his two great historical works depends entirely on two manuscripts, one of the 9th century and one of the 11th century, which is respectively 700 years later and 900 years later. Ugh, that's crazy. Like, and, and these things are taken at face value compared to the incredible, and, and, and the author goes on to name a few other historical documents where there's just minimal, minimal historical evidence. And meanwhile, we've got 3,000, 3,000 historical, or sorry, am I, why am I saying 3,000? We've got 6,000, nearly 6,000, 5,800 historical documents to support the New Testament. So here's here's a question that a lot of people say. They're like, well, you know what? Whether or not the annals of Tacitus or the histories of Tacitus me mean anything to me is irrelevant. Like they don't make claims about like whether or not I'm going to heaven or hell. They don't make claims about whether or not Jesus is the son of God. They don't make claims that fundamentally affect my life as a human being living right now today. And so uh, people will say, I believe that means we should have a higher stipulation for the New Testament. Like, because it makes more grandiose claims, the evidence should also be more grandiose. To which I say, that's not very historically honest of you. But also, even if that's true, we have an embarrassment of evidence to support the, the fact that the New Testament really is indeed trustworthy. So even if you do have a higher standard for the New Testament versus other historical documents that don't make such grandiose claims, it, the conversation is irrelevant because eight 
or nearly 6,000 manuscripts. Like that's a huge, that's a huge number compared to two. <laughs> I, I just saying, right? Like that's, that's huge. All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's go back to that conversation we were talking about the dating of the gospel. So we believe that the gospels were written at this time. And then we have manuscript evidence putting portions of these gospels within a lifetime of when they were written, which means that the copies like where, whereas with like the Gaelic war or whatever, the earliest copies 900 years after the original, we have one 60 years after the original. Like that's a huge deal but it gets better, okay? Uh, from a historical perspective, from a historical textual perspective, and I might be throwing in language that means other things. What I mean is from, from just historians that looked at, at ancient texts, the Bible in its, in, it, in its New Testament manuscripts are basically, it, it's, basically un, it's basically undeniable uh, that what we have today is what they actually wrote 2,000 years ago. Now, of course, the, the conversation about whether or not it's true, whether or not the claims that are made are accurate, that's a whole other conversation, and that's the conversation we're going to have next week. Here's what one scholar has to say. The interval, uh, Frederick Kenyon, the interval between the data of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small. So the original composition being when they were originally written and the earliest extant evidence being the first available manuscript that we currently have. And of course, archaeology is always digging up more, like the, the, the recent one that I just told you about from 2011. On a, in history, that's just not that, like 11 years is just not that much time, or 12 years or whatever. Okay. The interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible, according to this historian. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substan substan substantially as they were written has now been removed. So any doubt that they that they were somehow changed or anything along the historical path between the year 30 and the year now is completely torn down. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may re, may be regarded as finally established. And you want to know when that guy wrote that? Let's see. Uh 1940. <laughs> and that the the evidence, the body of evidence between 1940 and 2023 has just increased. The the our our evidence has increased like so much in just the in just those like 80 or so years. So just keep that keep that in mind. Now, this conversation gets even more interesting because even outside of the manuscript, like the literal manuscripts of the original copies of the new of the New Testament, right? We have writings of ancient church fathers who the they're called the apostolic apostolic fathers who wrote referencing the writings of the New Testament. So Here's the question that that answers. You might be thinking, okay, so we've got all these manuscripts and we've got all of these early manuscripts. Well, how do we know that like that these manuscripts were not just fabricated and then brought together? How do we know that they were circulating? How do we know all of that? 
Well, number one, where we have found the most ancient manuscripts. We know that, that the church has its birth in Jerusalem, right? The Christian church has its birth in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost, and then it just goes out from there. We find the oldest, man, the oldest papyruses in Egypt, which means that within a few, uh, like within a, just a short time frame, historically speaking, of the original writings, these documents were being circulated far and wide all over uh, the ancient Mediterranean region. All right. But even more than that, we also have authors, the apostolic fathers, as this, author, as this writer likes to talk, call them. We have them attesting to the New Testament in their writings, which means that they had access to the New Testament. So, for example, here's a quote. The authors known as the apostolic fathers wrote chiefly between 90 A.D., and 160 AD. And in their works, we find evidence of their acquaintance with the, with most of the books of the New Testament. In three, whose date is probably around AD 100, the Epistle of Barnabas, one of them, written perhaps in Alexandria, the Didache, or the Teachings of the Twelve Apostles, produced somewhere in Syria or Palestine, and the letter sent to the Corinthian church by Clement Bishop of, Bishop of Rome in AD 96. So between 96 and 100, which is 60, like 60 to 70 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? We find fairly certain quotations from the common traditions of the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, from Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and possible quotations from other books of the New Testament. In the letters written by Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, as he journeyed uh, to his martyrdom in Rome in AD 15. So before AD 15, as he journeyed to his, uh, sorry, there are reasonable, identifiable quotations from Matthew, John, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and possible allusions to, the, to Mark, Luke, Acts, Colossians, 2nd Thessalonians, Philemon, Hebrews, and 1st Peter. His younger contemporary, Polycarp, in a letter to the Philippians, uh, circa 120 or so, quotes from the common tradition of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, from Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Hebrews, 1st Peter, and 1st John. And we could just keep going and keep going. What this means is that even though our manuscripts are later than these original, than, than these these writers. Okay. So even though the manuscripts come a little bit later, right? And it's not that much later, historically speaking, on a textual basis. So even still, what we know from the writings of these early church fathers is that they were utilizing the, the texts that were being circulated to them way early. So like within, within just a short period of, of the original writing of the document, people are using it and quoting from it. And we have those quotes, which is phenomenal. Like it, all of the, here's the thrust of this whole portion of the podcast. It all points to an, to early and authentic truth that the words that we have today are the same words that they had 2000 years ago or that they wrote 2000 years ago. All right. Okay. So I mean, take a deep breath. Uh, we're, 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 we still have a little ways to go. Um, th there's even more historical references. Uh, Ignatius, uh, Bishop of Antioch, refers to the gospel, the four gospels in AD 115. Tatian, uh, uh, we'll, we'll move past that one, actually. Ir 
Irenaeus called the fourfold gospel a fact in the 180s. Uh, so basically, there's this uh, there's this the gospel uh, referred to in antiquity. Basically, this this guy named Tatian took all of the four gospels and tried to create kind of like one gospel, and that gospel got used in portions of the church as the gospel, like the gospel according to all four authors kind of thing. Um, obviously, we don't do that anymore, but also that also has very early attestations in the 170s and 180s. All right. Speaking of the Old Testament, by the way, <laughs> that was random, bad transition. In AD 150, that's AD 150, Justin Martyr writes that the Old Testament and the New Testament writings were both read in church gatherings. So in case you were wondering if the if early Christians took seriously the writings of the Old Testament, uh, fear no more. They did. And they commonly did that as early as 150, but I guarantee you it was earlier than that. All right. Here's the kind of final argument that people make, right? So I trust it. You know, I, I believe you when you say that there's all these manuscripts and I believe you when you say that there's manuscript evidence that points to these things being authored very, very, very soon after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And also, the fact that they were attested to so soon after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus indicates that the testimony that we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Acts, and other places like Paul's writings, uh, the, the testimony is a first-person testimony. Of course, uh, uh, Luke, we believe, for example, was was like collecting testimonies from early followers of Jesus while Paul um, was in his imprisonment. And we don't have to get into all that right now. All that to say, if, if they were written hundreds of years later, like the Gnostic Gospels, which we throw out the window because they were written so much later, obviously written so much later, then, then we would have a serious question on our hands. But they were written so soon, historically speaking, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that, like, the idea that these things could have been so easily corrupted in such a short time period is, like, the whole, like, argument that it's a telephone game? No. And here's why. If it was one guy's voice, then I would agree with you. Telephone. But we're talking about a whole community of believers who saw these things firsthand and they're all attesting and, and sharing and saying, yeah, I was there when that happened. And if they were not there when it, if, if they were there when it happened and something got written that was false, they would have corrected it. Anyway, so, oh, I, we missed a whole big portion of this. We, we need to talk about uh, the, the, the textual variations. So um, let me find that in my notes very quickly. Oh, goodness, where did I put it? Okay, so uh, another aspect of this conversation that people talk about quite a bit are the textual variants, okay? So there are 400,000 textual variants between New Testament manuscripts. So they're like, well, here, look, look at all these variants. That means that it was, that that these, that these that, that we can't trust it, that it, it really has been corrupted, the 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 manuscript evidence points to it being corrupted. Well, let's let's continue that conversation. Let's see what what the what it really means. Of those 400,000, 70% are neither and there's four categories here. The first category is neither viable nor meaningful. Now, viable means is it possible that it was there in the original manuscript? Meaningful means if it 
if it is or isn't there in the original manuscript, does it affect the meaning, the core doctrines of the Christian faith? Now, 70% of them are neither, meaning they're just like spelling differences, just minor, little, tiny, itty-bitty changes. And maybe like they put the A before the the instead of the the before the A, like just little, tiny, obvious, easy to catch you know, like there's, there's a 0% chance that it's even meaningful. And even if it was meaningful, whatever. Plus there's little to no, uh, sorry. I shouldn't have said that so flippantly. It's not meaningful. This category means it's not viable. Wasn't in the original manuscripts and not meaningful. It's been a long day. My bad. All right. Second category, viable, but not meaningful. Meaning there's a probability that they were there in the original manuscripts. However, even if they were there in the original manuscripts, it's not particularly meaningful to any of what we believe. For example, the spelling of John. We don't know if there's two Greek letter N's in the spelling of John or one. And the spelling of Mary. We don't know if the spelling of Mary was standardized. You can see it, it, it's possible that it was in the original manuscript, but it, it's irrelevant to the meaning of the text. We know it's John. We know it's Mary kind of thing. That makes up a portion. Another portion is meaningful but not viable. What this means is it's it would change the meaning of the text, but it what there's a zero percent chance that it was in the original manuscript. A great example of this is Luke chapter six verse twenty two. Blessed are you when you hate when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now there is one single manuscript from the 11th century, a thousand years after Jesus, that takes out the Son of Man. So yeah, is it a variant? Sure. But it's obvious that it wasn't there in the original. So we, like, it's easy for scholarship to just throw that out the window, proverbially speaking, simply because, like, it doesn't take a, it doesn't take a very highly intelligent person to look at something written a thousand years after Jesus and say, that's the false thing, and what we have currently is the true thing. I should also add here, okay, we'll, we'll, we're going to get a little farther. There's also one final category, which is viable and meaningful, meaning that there is some kind of manuscript variance that points to the fact that in the original manuscript, there was something different and that it was meaningful in so far as it, it actually changed the meaning of a particular text. Wait. Don't jump to any conclusions yet. There's something very important for you to know about this. First, even of all of these viable, meaningful options, of which there are only less than 1%, so less than 100% of that 400,000 textual variants, less than 1%, okay? Of that, and many scholars think it's like between 0.8% and 0.2%. So like it's incredibly small, super tiny amount. None of them change the core doctrines of the Christian faith. So even though they're meaningful in that they, they, they change the meaning of the text, they are not at all, <laughs> they're, they're not at all pertinent. Okay. So here's, here's one other thing, and I'm going to approach this as gently and as tenderly as I can. There are English translations translations that are newer, and there are English translations that are much older. 
the much older English translations utilize less Greek manuscripts than the newer versions of the New Testament, the newer trans English translations of the New Testament. Here's why, because they had access to less. So back in the day of King James, for example, there were there was much less access to texts than there are today. Now, did anybody in the day of King James set out to mistranslate the Bible? No, of course not. They took the information that they had and they translated the Bible. Praise God, we had it in English and that was revolutionary for the time, as you all know. 500 years later or 400 years or whatever, we have thousands more manuscripts than they did back then. And not only do we have more manuscripts, we have much earlier manuscripts. And when it comes to textual, when it comes to knowing what's true in a text, the, the earlier you get, the more confident you can be that what you have is actually accurate to what was originally written. So there are a number of passages that show up in the English translation of the Bible that we have since the time of King James proven through textual criticism, which is this science of earlier is better and uh, the, the closer to the original location is better kind of thing. Uh, there, are, there are passages in our current translations of the New Testament that are not found in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. Now you might be wondering, oh crap, what are they? It, is this been, has this been hidden from me? Good news, it has not been hidden from you. Because in most modern translations of the Bible, including the New King James Version, these portions of the text have either been relocated from the text into a footnote, where, in the opinion of this person, they belong, or they have been re or they've been put they've been bracketed, meaning the and, and like the ESV Bible, for example, brackets them. Uh, probably the most famous of these is the woman caught in adultery in John chapter seven and eight. Uh, he who has not sinned cast the first stone. Uh, my research indicates that this does not show up in the in the manuscripts until 1,000 years after Christ. Now, uh, it doesn't in I, even though it doesn't show up. Okay, so even though I I personally struggle with that particular text as being the authoritative word of God, simply because it's obviously not in the original manuscripts, even still, it doesn't cause any problem because it's not outside, it's not teaching something different about who Jesus is. Uh, every single concept that we can derive from the woman caught in adultery, you can derive from other extremely trustworthy portions of the text. And if your Bible, your Bible does do this, it either brackets it or puts it in a footnote. And it's as simple as that. This act, this happens quite a few times in the New Testament. Just something to be aware of. Um, as you're reading through, pay attention to those brackets, pay attention to those footnotes, and you'll notice uh, that it'll have a, a little asterisk or whatever that says, this portion of the text is not found in the earliest, most reliable for, uh, manuscripts of the New Testament. I think that's a good thing. Here's why I think so. People will say, well, obviously it's been corrupted because look, you have evidence that it's been corrupted. And the ans my answer to this is, yeah, and we know what it is. And we've taken it out and we've corrected it and we've made clear that this is not, this is probably not the Bible. And to me, that that's compelling evidence to trust the Bible, not to distrust the Bible. Because it, 
if it's leading you to distrust the Bible, uh, I think you're getting the evidence backwards. Uh, because the fact that we as Christians are looking at our holy text and we're saying, here's what's wrong with it. Here's what's not there in the original manuscripts. That's proof that you can trust what's actually there because we're not lying to you. We're not, we're, there's, there's no like overarching scheme to try and deceive the multitudes into thinking that this was the Bible or this wasn't the Bible. Like that just doesn't exist because they tell you, here's what was there and here's what wasn't. And we're going to let you make the decision kind of thing. Um, if you have more questions on that, or if that didn't come off as clear, I would love for you to email me, uh, podcast at forgeforward.org. All right. One last little bit of this conversation. There are those who make the claim that there was a council somewhere. Usually people say it's the council of Nicaea. <laughs> I don't know why they chose that one. It's not historically accurate. Um, that council did happen, but the subject of that council was the divinity of Christ, not the, not anything else. All right. For some reason, people point at this council and they say, yeah, so there were all these writings around and some of them were what we have in the New Testament and some of them weren't. And you, you can't trust what we have because that council decided what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible. This is completely false. Uh, that, that statement could not be further from the truth. Uh, here, here's more what happened. First of all, it wasn't the Council of Nicaea. Uh, there were two separate councils. One was the Council of Hippo, not 393, and one was the Council of Carthage in 397. And you're thinking to yourself, man, that was a long time after Jesus. And you're right, 400 years is a long time after Jesus. But that only matters if they were picking and choosing what was in the Bible. That's not, if you, if you, if you study the Council of Hippo and the Council of Carthage, what you'll discover is that they were not picking and choosing from a whole list of books. It's not like they had a big old long list of ancient writings, you know, quote unquote Christian writings. And there's the, we're choosing this one and not choosing this one and choosing this one and not choosing this one and choosing this one. No, it's not what happened. What happened is at those councils, they simply gathered together and made official, made an official statement. Hey, this is what we believe is the Bible that we've already been teaching is the Bible, the authoritative word of God, the New Testament. Um, so the objection that these, these, these councils somehow selectively chose, uh, this book over this book and left out that book and blah, blah, blah. The, it, no, it's not what happened. What, what happened was they, they codified is the best word I can think of. They took what all Christians all, all across the ancient world were already using as the Bible. And they said, okay, this is the Bible. <laughs> they, they, they just were like, yep, this is the Bible. We've been using this as the Bible. Basically they like put it on record. And that's, I hope that helps. Like, I hope that makes it clear. They, they didn't pick and choose. They, they just put it on record. What everybody was already using as the new Testament, they just said, okay, it's official. This is the new Testament. And we've been using it for 300 years and we're going to keep using it for the next 1700 years. Plus like, this is it. And that's all that happened. Uh, people will say, well, they expelled the Gnostic Gospels. And I'm like, bro, the Gnostic Gospels expelled themselves. Nobody outside of the small minority that were Gnostics affirmed the Gnostic Gospels. All Christians just believed that the, the Gospels were 
what they were, that that the Gnostic Gospels, which came much later, were written much later, and didn't even match the heart or values or message of the New Testament. Everybody was like, yeah, that's a heresy. Let's not include it. I mean, it wasn't like some big scheme. It was just, yeah, I mean, it doesn't match. Like, why would we do that? It came way later. Obviously, this is not from God. Obviously, this wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. Like, we we get in our heads that there was this big conspiracy. There was no conspiracy. It was just matter of fact. It was just like, yep, this is it, and this is not it, and now it's officially on the record. Great. Good job, guys. Let's go back to doing what we've been doing for 300 years. So, anyway, I hope that brings some clarity. Uh, there, obviously, this conversation is quite long, and uh, man, 43 minutes, that's crazy. Obviously, this conversation is quite long, and we could get really in-depth with it all. My encouragement to you is this. There are lots of resources out there uh, where you can go and research. I just really encourage you to make sure that whatever you're, you know, when I say research, I don't just mean Google a random word. I mean, make sure you're reading from a, a trustworthy, viable, uh, scholarly person, someone who's actually done the work uh, to put the words, they've done the work behind the words. They're not just writing flippantly. They're not just a conspiracy theorist who's who said, you know, I did a little bit of research on Google one day. These are the people who have written, who have read the original documents. They know the ancient languages. They've done all of the heavy lifting, and they can confidently say what is true and what is false. And so, as you do your own research, just really encourage you in that. Second thing is, I, uh, I, I know this conversation can be complicated. Um, so if you have additional questions, you can feel free to reach out to us at podcast at forgeforward.org. We'd be happy to answer any of your questions. And if you think another episode on this particular subject is necessary, uh, please let us know and we will bring on some more people to discuss this particular topic. All that being said, um, what you have written in your English Bible has very obviously and accurately been translated from the original texts. Uh, even though we don't have the original manuscripts, we have manuscripts that are extremely close, and we know that we can trust that what they say is accurate because we have manuscripts dating very, 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 very close to the originals, um, especially on a historical basis. And we take at face value the, the teachings of Tacitus or whatever. I don't see why we wouldn't take at face value the teachings of the New Testament, at least as accurately accurately transposed across 2,000 years. Don't be deceived. These things are accurate. And uh, excited about our conversation next week where we will dive even deeper into this subject and evaluate whether or not the teachings of the New Testament are true and how do we decide if they are true or false. Anyway, I hope you have a great rest of your day. God bless.